Chapter 19 of Lover or Friend by Rosa Carey Yellow Stockings on the Tapis We school our manners, act our parts, but he who sees us through and through knows that the bent of both our hearts was to be gentle, tranquil, true. Matthew Arnold Audrey had not forgotten Molly all this time. She kept her promise and wrote to her frequently and she had long letters from her in return. Molly's girlish effusions were very innocent and loving. One day Michael asked to read one of them. He smiled as he handed it back. She is a dear little girl, he said heartily. I do not wonder that you are so fond of her. She is only an undeveloped child now, but there is plenty of good raw material. Molly will make a fine, large-hearted woman one day, like someone else I know he finished to himself. If I do not mistake, Molly is cut after Audrey's pattern. Now and then, Mrs. Blake wrote also. Her letters were airy and picturesque, like a talk. Audrey would read them aloud to her mother and Michael. I really feel as though our Richmond dreams had come true, she wrote once, as though our favourite castle in the air were built. Not really, mother, you don't think this beautiful house and garden belong to us really, asks Molly in her stupid way. You know what a literal little soul she is. Oh, go away, Molly, I exclaim quite crossly. How can I help it if you have no imagination? For all I know, the place is ours. No one interferes with us. We come and go as we like. The birds sing to us. The flowers bloom for our pleasure. Sometimes we sit by the lake or Molly paddles me to deep water chine, or we read our history on that delicious circular seat overlooking the terraces. Then the silence is invaded, a neat-handed Phyllis, isn't that poetically expressed, comes up with a message from that good Mrs. Draper. Where would Mrs. Blake and Miss Molly have their tea? Oh, you dear thoughtful creature, as though I do not know who has prompted Mrs. Draper. Of course, Molly cries, the garden, mamma, and the garden, so be it, say I. And presently it comes, such a tea, such fruit, such cream, such cakes. No wonder Molly is growing fat. And how am I to thank you and dear Mrs. Ross? I must give it up. Words will not express my sense of your goodness. But before I finish this rigmarole, I must tell you that Molly practices every day for an hour and keeps up her French, and the Roman history progresses well. I am carrying Molly so fast over the ground that we shall soon be dragged at Pompey's chariot wheels, and as she complains that she forgets what we have read, I make her take notes and copy them neatly in a book. I know you will be glad to hear this. Hmm, was Michael's sole observation when Audrey had finished. It's a very interesting letter, very droll and amusing, remarked Mrs. Ross in her kindly way. Mrs. Blake is a clever woman, don't you think so, Michael? But Michael could not be induced to hazard an opinion. Indeed, his behaviour was so unsatisfactory that Audrey threatened to keep the next letter to herself but the last week was nearly at an end, and though everyone loudly lamented over this fact, it was observed that Mrs. Ross's countenance grew brighter every day. She never willingly left her beautiful home, and she always hailed her return to it with joy. Not even her highland home, with its heather and long festoons of staghorn moss, could divert her affections from her beloved woodcot, and the young mistress of Hillside fully echoed these sentiments. "'It's been a lovely time,' and has done Percy a world of good, she said to her mother as they were packing up some curiosities together. But I can see he is growing a little tired of idleness, and after all, there is no place like home. 
I'm sure your father and I feel the same. And really, Geraldine, on a wet day, these rooms are terribly small. I used to take my work upstairs. One seemed to breathe freer than in that stuffy parlour that Audrey and Michael think so charming. So our last evening has come, observed Audrey in a curious tone, as she and Michael wandered down to the little bridge they called their trysting place. A tiny rivulet of water trickled over the stones, and two or three ducks were dibbling with yellow bills along the miniature boulders. Audrey sat down on the low wall, and Michael stooped to pick up a pebble, an action that excited frantic joy in Booty's breast. Ah, to be sure, he replied as he sent it skimming along the water, while Booty patted after it, barking with glee. Don't you remember De Quincey's observation? And as Audrey shook her head, for she never remembered quotations, he went on. He declares that it is true and feeling the mark of Dr. Johnson's that we never do anything consciously for the last time of things, that is to say, which we have long been in the habit of doing, without sadness of heart. I think he is right, and Audrey bent over the low parapet to watch a sudden scrimmage below. Booty was frisking among the boulders, and the ducks, evidently ruffled in their feelings, were swimming under the bridge, quacking a loud, indignant protest. Even ducks lose their tempers sometimes, and the angry flourish of their tails and the pouting of their soft necks and their open bills showed keen remonstrance and utter vexation of spirit. Booty, come here and leave those ducks in peace. And then, while Michael threw another pebble or two, he sat asking herself if she felt this sadness. Was she glad or sorry to know that tomorrow they'd be on the way to Rutherford? Would it not be a matter of regret if their return were to be suddenly postponed? She had been very happy here. She had seen so much of her father and Michael. But... Audrey brought her inward questioning to an abrupt end. It has been a nice time, Michael, she said gently. A very nice time indeed. Look here, I wish you would substitute another adjective, he remonstrated quite seriously. Nice is such an insipid, sugary sort of word. There's no sort of character about it. Now, if you had said a good old time, and have drawn down a reproof on myself for talking slang. Well, a glorious time, he corrected. Shall we say that instead? You have enjoyed it, have you not? With one of his searching looks. Oh, yes, I have never enjoyed myself more. And Michael, her love of mischief predominating, I do believe we have not quarrelled once. You've been such a brick, you know, and have given in to me and everything. Somehow, continued Michael, throwing up a pebble and catching it again, if people give in to me, I am remarkably sweet-tempered. We were very near a quarrel once, I remember, but it never came to anything. It was a hot afternoon, I think. We were both sleepy. I cannot say I remember it. Well, let it pass. I am in that sort of magnanimous mood that I am ready to pronounce absolution on all offences, past, present, and to come. By the by, Audrey, I forgot to tell you something. Kester's had the letter he wanted, and Widow Blake graciously signifies her assent. Michael, let me give you a timely warning. We shall quarrel if you call my friend by that ridiculous name. A quarrel cannot be carried on by one party alone, he returned lazily, and I absolutely refuse to consider a mere statement of facts in the light of a grievance. Still, if your feelings are wounded and you object to my allusion to your fair friend's bereaved condition, Michael, with a little stamp, will you leave off talking about Mrs. Blake and tell me what you mean? It is perfectly simple, I assure you. Kester wrote to his mother to ask if he might go up to town with me, and she said, yes. 
Must you really go? Rather regretfully. It would be so much nicer if you came to Rutherford with us. You know, she continued affectionately, I always miss you so much when you're away. Michael gave her one of his quick looks, and then he picked up a smooth white stone that had attracted his attention. I shall follow you in ten days. At least, that is my present intention, unless Stedman's business keeps me. But will not Kester be in your way? Not a bit. You'll be a famous companion. You'll have the run of my rooms, and when I'm at the club or with the other fellows, you'll find a hundred ways of amusing himself. It will be such a treat to him. I want it to be a treat. He has not had much pleasure in his life, poor fellow. Do you know, Audrey, he's never really seen London. Won't he enjoy bowling along the embankment in a hansom, and what do you suppose he will say to Westminster Abbey and the Houses of Parliament? I mean to take him to the theatre. Actually, he has never seen a play. We will have dinner at the Criterion, and I will get Fred Summers to join us. Well, what now? Regarding her with astonishment, for Audrey was looking at him, and her beautiful grey eyes were full of tears. Because you are so kind, she said a little huskily, because no one else ever did such kind, thoughtful things, and because you never think yourself at all. Oh, come, you must not begin praising me after this fashion, he said lightly, for he would not show her how much she was touched that there were actually tears in her eyes for him. And I think it no wonder at all that Kester is so devoted to you. Booty, exclaimed Michael sadly, as the little creature jumped on his knee. He continued in a melancholy tone. Do you know, Booty, you have a rival. Someone else beside yourself dares to be devoted to your master. Ah, no wonder you wag your tail so feebly. The moon loves many brooks, but the brooks love... One moon. It is an affecting image. Michael, I do wish you would be a little serious this last evening. I really mean it. Kester thinks more of you than he does of his own brother. Oh, he'll be wiser some day, returned Michael with the utmost cheerfulness. You must make allowances for his youth and inexperience. He is an odd boy, rather precocious for his age, and his weak health has fostered his little peculiarities. You speak as though some apology were needed. You are very dense this evening, Michael. I believe I said I was not at all surprised at Kester's devotion. You have been so good to him. I think the air of this place is enervating, replied Michael, jumping up from the parapet. I know people do not generally consider moorland air enervating, but mine is a peculiar constitution and needs more bracing than other men's. Shall we walk back, my dear? But as he gave her his hand to rise, the gentle melancholy of his smile smote her with a sudden sense of sadness for it spoke of some hidden pain that even her sympathy could not reach, and she knew that his whimsical words only cloaked some vague uneasiness. Come, dear, come, he continued. These scotch twilights are somewhat damp and chilly. We will burn that pine log this evening, and we will sit round it and tell stories. Eh, Audrey? But in spite of these cheerful words, Michael was the quietest of the group that evening, as he watched from his dusky corner and perceived himself the play of the firelight on one bright, earnest face. Audrey sat on the rug at her father's feet, with her head against his knee. It was a favourite position of hers. Now, Daddy Glass Eyes, it is your turn, she said, using the old baby name. Michael has turned disagreeable and has gone to sleep, so we will miss him. Kester, are you thinking of your story? It must be a nice, creepy one, please. I think we ought all to go to bed early, John, interrupted Mrs. Ross. Audrey is in one of her sociable moods, but she forgets we have a long journey before us. Kester is looking as sleepy as possible. 
and as Dr. Ross always acted on his wife's quiet hints, the fireside circle soon broke up. It had been arranged that the whole party should sleep two nights in town. Geraldine and Audrey had shopping to do, and both Dr. Ross and his son-in-law had business appointments to detain them. Audrey and her mother had tea with Michael one evening, and then they bade him and Kester goodbye. "'You will tell Molly all about me, will you not, Miss Ross?' Kester exclaimed excitedly. "'Tell her I'm going to St. Paul's and the National Gallery and the British Museum. Fred Summers is going to pilot me about, as Captain Burnett has so much to do. Do you know Fred Summers, Miss Ross? He seems a nice sort of fellow.' Oh yes, Audrey knew all about Fred Summers, who was another protégé of Michael's. Indeed, the whole Summers family considered themselves indebted to Captain Burnett. Fred's father was only a city clerk, and at one time his head had been very much below water. He was a good, weak sort of man, but he had not sufficient backbone when the tide sat dead against him he lost courage. A man will die, said the doctor. He has no stamina, he simply offers no resistance to the disease that is carrying him off. You should cheer him up a bit, Mrs. Summers. Cry never mended a sick man yet. For he was a parish doctor, and a little rough in his ways. A man has no right to lose courage and show the white feather when he has a wife and six children depending on him, said Michael. Some chance, or rather say some providential arrangement, had brought him across the threshold. Michael came across all sorts of people in his London life, and though his acquaintance among city clerks was rather limited, he had known Mr. Summers slightly. When Michael stepped up to that sickbed, with that wholesome rebuke on his tongue, but his heart was very full of sympathy for the stricken man, Robert Summers' difficulties were practically over. The debts that were chafing the life out of him, debts incurred by sickness, by a hundred little disasters, were paid out of Michael's small means, and, despite his doctor's prophecy, Robert Summers rose from his bed a braver, stronger man. Michael never lost interest in the family. They would always be pinched, a struggling, he knew. A city clerkship is not an El Dorado of riches, and growing boys and girls have to be clothed and educated. Michael took the eldest boy, Fred, under his wing. By some means or other, he got him into Christ's hospital. How Fred's little sisters admired those yellow stockings, though it may be doubted whether they were not too warm a colour for Fred's private taste. Fred was a Grecian by this time, a big strapping fellow he looked beside Kester, with a freckled intelligent face, a mop of dark hair. He was a great favourite of Audrey's, and she had once induced her mother to let him spend a fortnight at Woodcott. Dr. Ross also took a kindly interest in him. Fred will make his mark one day. You are right, Michael, he observed. There's plenty of brains under that rough thatch of his. He will shoulder his way through the world. Christ's Hospital has turned out many a fine scholar, and Fred does not mean to be behind them. Audrey bade goodbye to Michael somewhat reluctantly. You will follow us in ten days, will you not? she asked rather anxiously. Remember that London never suits you, and you're always better at Rutherford, and it'll be such a pity to lose your good looks. Scotland has done wonders for you. Percival was only saying so this morning. I shall be sure to come as soon as I have settled this troublesome piece of business, he returned cheerfully. Take care of yourself, my Lady Bountiful, and do not get into mischief during your mentor's absence. But when the hansom had driven off, Michael did an unusual thing. He walked to a small oak-framed mirror that hung between the windows and regarded himself with earnest scrutiny. He was alone. The two boys had started off in an omnibus to the National Gallery, and Michael had promised to lunch with a friend in Lincoln's Inn. My good looks, he soliloquized. I wonder if my health has really improved. 
She was right. I felt a different man in Scotland. I have not felt so well and strong since that Zulu slashed me. Poor devil, I sent him to limbo. It is true, the doctors were not hopeless. In time and with care, if I could only keep my nerves in order, that was what they said. Oh, if I could only believe them, if I could only feel the power for work, any sort of work, coming back to me, I would. I would. He stopped and broke off the thread of his thoughts abruptly. What a fool I am. I will not let this temptation master me. If I were once to entertain such a hope, to believe it possible, I should work myself into a restless fever. Avaunt, Satanus, sweet, subtle, most impossible of impossibilities. A sane man cannot be deluded. Good God, why must some men lead such empty lives? For a moment, the firm, resolute mouth twitched underneath the reddish-brown moustache. Then Michael rang the bell and ordered a hansom. It was late on a September evening when Audrey drove through Rutherford. She leaned forward in the carriage a little eagerly as they passed the great cottage. Surely Molly would be at the window. But no, the windows were blank. No girlish face was there to greet her. And with a slight feeling of disappointment, she drew back again. But nothing could long spoil the joy of returning home. Oh, mother, does it not all look lovely? she exclaimed later on that evening. She had been everywhere, to the stables, the poultry-yard, the dairy, and lastly to Mrs. Draper's room. The twilight was creeping over the gardens of Woodcott before Audrey had finished her rambles. She had been down to the lake, she had sat on Michael's bench, and she had looked at her favourite shrubs and flowers, and Dr. Ross smiled as he heard her gaily singing along the terraces. "'Come in, you madcap,' he said good-humouredly. "'Do you know how heavy the jewels are?' There, I told you, your dress is quite damp. What does it matter? returned Audrey with superb disdain. Rains of Marley do not wet. Do you recollect that exquisite courtier-like speech? So, no doubt, Woodcott dews are quite wholesome. Is it not delicious to be home again? And there is no more will you come, Ben, from honest Jean, and will you have a supper porridge, Miss Ross, or a few broth to keep out the cold? Home, home, there is no place like home. And then they heard her singing at the top of her fresh young voice as she roamed through the empty rooms, some old ballad Michael had taught her. Oh, there's nobody here's widow Miller complain. Oh, there's nobody here's widow Miller complain. Though the heart of this world's as hard as a stain, yet there's nobody here's widow Miller complain. Dear child, observed her mother fondly, I do not think anyone ever was happier than our Audrey. She is like a sunbeam in the house, John. And then they both paused to listen. You wealthy and wise in that fair world of ours, when your fields wave regaled your gardens with flowers, when ye bind up the sheaves, leave out a few grains for the heartbroken widow who never complains. <laughs>